You're listening to Season 8, Episode number 5 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue with the theme, Theology of Mission, particularly discussing the topic, Mission in the Prophets. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist, Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Well, thank you so very much once again for checking out another episode of Strike the Match. Hey, appreciate you all listening to my podcast, running season number eight. Again, never thought we'd make it to season number eight, but uh, we're still going strong, and Lord willing, we will continue on. So um, if you're not a subscriber, let me encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, just at the beginning of this podcast, uh, take a moment to, to subscribe. I would also appreciate that as well. That way you will not miss any of these episodes uh, that will be coming out, particularly this season, as I continue with this theme, Theology of Mission. Of course, if you're driving down the road... If you're on a treadmill right now, I don't want to interrupt what you're doing and put others in jeopardy, so uh, you can subscribe later. Hey, we are moving into this um, this uh, discussion. We have moved out of Mission in Torah, and now we are in the second section of the Tanakh. And so let me encourage you also... If you are just jumping into uh, this uh, podcast season, that you go back and listen to um, the previous uh, four episodes of um, of this season in particular, because I am uh, teaching through uh, one of my books that uh, came out last year, Theology of Mission, and uh, if you haven't had a chance to get a copy of this uh, biblical theology, I would appreciate it if you if you would do so. But I am just hitting some of the highlights of the book uh, and its contents. Um, if you're interested in more details, if you're interested in uh, some of the resources that I'm referencing in this podcast, uh, check out the book. The information is there, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. And if you have had a chance to get a copy of the book. Hey, send me a, send me a contact, send me an email, uh, reach out to me. Let me know what uh, what you think. I greatly appreciate your feedback. Uh, there are things that I've missed, things that I have overlooked uh, in the process. Um, let me know. Let me know because I would certainly appreciate uh, your wise counsel in knowing how to uh, improve uh, what I'm doing, grow in what I'm doing in, in days to come. But today, we are in the topic, or on the topic, excuse me, of Mission in the Prophets. Now, again, if you're not familiar with the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, then the uh, language that I have been using, uh, and even the language that I'll be using today, will be a little um, unfamiliar to you. So uh, when we talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, I'm talking about what is referred to as the Tanakh, which is comprised of 27 books. Now, we know those in our present-day English translations uh, and uh, the way that they're ordered. Uh, we know those as the Old Testament, and uh, there are 39 of those books. However, the contents of the Hebrew Scriptures uh, organizes and categorizes the books differently. 
the content is the same. So the content does not change. So just because there are 27 books in the Tanakh does not mean that there are books that are cut out of the Hebrew Scriptures or that uh, the church later on added to uh, the uh, Old Testament canon uh, some additional books that uh, were not already in place by the time we get to the first century. Um, but the organization is different, and so the Tanakh is actually divided into three parts. The first uh, part is uh, referred to as Torah, which includes the first five books of the, uh, the scriptures. The second category, and that's what we're moving into today, that's the category of the prophets. And then the third category uh, is the category of writings. So, for example, whenever we uh, look into the New Testament in uh, Luke's Gospel, I think it's Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is with his uh, two disciples uh, on the road uh, to the town of Emmaus, and they're speaking, he talks, the, talks about them being slow of heart, slow to, uh, to learn, and how everything that uh, was basically foretold in the, uh, uh, in the law, or also Torah, uh, prophets, and uh, in the Psalms, or sometimes the word Psalms represents the third category, known as the writings in the Tanakh, uh, you see that tripartite structure uh, that is acknowledged there in the New Testament uh, with Jesus. And so while we, for the most part today, do not refer to that in, uh, within the church setting, uh, that, is, uh, that is what the, uh, the, um, uh, the Jewish community, the ancient Jewish uh, community, would be familiar with. And so uh, in my book, and it's the only book to my knowledge that does this, uh, in my book, Theology of Mission, I examine the Old Testament and the concept of uh, the mission of God uh, looking at the Tanakh structure. And, and there's a reason for that, and I talk about that in detail in the book, and I think it's very important. I think that there is something to be said about understanding God's mission of how he particularly, and I trace that theme, uh, desires to bless the nations. He's glorifying himself, yes, but how is he doing that practically? And practically he's doing it through the blessing of the nations. And so I, I think that there is something to that organization, that structure of the, uh, the Tanakh that is, that is important and helps shed light on the understanding of the mission of God in the Old Testament in, in a way that oftentimes we do, not, um, we do not see with our present organization and structure when we look at a biblical theology of mission throughout the Old Testament. So, um, so for example, for example um, when you look at our present um, uh, Old Testament, it concludes with Malachi, right? So Malachi is the last book, but in the Tanakh structure, it actually concludes with the section called the Writings, and it concludes with, with the book that uh, is referred to as Chronicles. Now again, uh, in the Tanakh, uh, what we would call First and Second Chronicles is considered one book, and so it concludes with Chronicles. And so uh, the Tanakh ends with the, um, with the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people, being, being released from captivity by Cyrus and allowing them to go up, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And then the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, if you will, concludes. And so I think that that is actually critical. It's actually an eschatological um, uh, uh, foreshadowing of what is to come, because as you move through Torah and you move through the prophets, you find out that something very significant to the blessing of the nations and the restoration of all things is related to the people of God uh, returning to the land and rebuilding the temple, uh, the temple in which the Messiah would come. Now, if you look at our present structure within our Old Testament, uh, we end with Malachi, and Malachi also concludes 
with uh, with a eschatological foreshadowing, and it's uh, there uh, at the end of that book. It's a reference to Elijah, who would be the forerunner, who would come before the Messiah. And of course, when we then turn the page and we fast forward 400 years and we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel, we quickly learn as we journey into the gospels that uh, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, uh, uh, was that Elijah who was to come before the Messiah. So whether you follow the structure that we are most familiar with, with uh, the conclusion of the Old Testament being Malachi, or you use the Tanakh structure, you, you, get, you get to the same end result, if you will. You get to the same conclusion, and, and it's, still, it's still the same aspect of the mission of God. You just, get, you just see it from a different angle, from a different perspective. It gives you different insights. And, and so to, to say that one is better than the other, to conclude with Malachi or to conclude with uh, Chronicles. I think that that is actually a, a false dichotomy. Um, if you want to read more about this, uh, I, you know, let me encourage you to take a look at uh, Stephen Dempster's book, uh, Dominion and Dynasty. It's an excellent, excellent theology of the Hebrew Bible. And I know a lot of people uh, uh, you know, push back on that. In fact, I had people, um, well, one or two in particular, to uh, push back on me when I was writing this book uh, about why a believer, a New Testament Christian, should not be looking at the mission of God through the Tanakh structure, because, well, for one particular reason, uh, how the Tanakh ends, with the people going back into the land as opposed to a foreshadowing of the Elijah who is to come. And so that canon structure, if you will, that canonical uh, format that, uh, that is there, uh, sometimes I think that it just creates some, some uh, reductionistic matters that are not as significant as some people think. But I say all that, one— to explain to you uh, why I am uh, organizing my study through the Old Testament as I am. And, um, and so I do that in the book. And so that brings us to a very important thing today as we are looking at mission in the prophets, because when you look at the Tanakh structure of the prophets, the, the contents of that section differ from the contents of how we have been traditionally uh, taught to think, particularly in Protestant circles, about what is called the prophets. So the Tanakh is organized, or the prophet section, the prophetic section, if you will, is organized into two categories. It's organized into what is called the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets, uh, that section contains four books, and those are the four we're going to look at today. The latter prophets also contains four books, but the books are going to be strange to our ears, as most uh, Christians in the uh, 21st century, when I share those with you. So the former prophets, what are the former prophets? The former prophets include the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, First and Second Samuel in the Tanakh, that is considered one book. And Kings, and once again, First and Second Kings is considered one book. So yes, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings; those are considered prophetic writings in the Tanakh structure. And in my discussion of the mission of God, I include those as prophetic writings. And those are the four we're going to look at today as we think about the mission of God in the prophets. This is actually going to be a two-part uh, podcast episode, and so, uh, Lord willing, the next episode will be an examination of the mission of God in the prophets, but we will specifically think about the latter prophets. So, what are the contents found in the latter prophets? So, in the latter prophets, 
you have four books, and those books are Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and what is referred to as the Book of the Twelve, or called the Twelve. And in our uh, church tradition, we think about those twelve, if you will, as the twelve minor prophets. But from the Tanakh structure, uh, the latter prophets contain only four books, and one is called the Twelve, even though it has four divisions in it that we have come to refer to as the Minor Prophets. So we will get into looking at the mission of God in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the Twelve in the next episode. But in this episode, let's take a few moments to think about the mission of God in uh, the Former Prophets. Now, as we move into uh, this uh, discussion over this podcast episode and the next podcast episode, I think uh, some of the things that we need to think about, just to sort of set some general backgrounds now that you know how the Tanakh sort of is structured, um, some, some background categories, if you will, background descriptions, that may be helpful to us as we think about these themes and sub-themes that connect with the mission of God. So, the prophets in the Tanakh, they're organized, as I mentioned, uh, into the former and into the latter prophets. Now, this series or set of writings um, not only addresses Israel's history, so many times we refer to some of those books as the history books, uh, they not only refer to Israel's history, but they offer much perspective on the mission of God. The former prophets describe general historical events and the theological matters related to Israel during those times. So that would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. They cover a period from Israel's entrance into Canaan until the Babylonian invasion and exile. The latter prophets, that would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the Twelve, the latter prophets offer specific and extensive treatment related to Israel's major historical events. Prophecy, prophecy interprets history. This is important. Prophecy interprets history and explains why Israel lost her great blessings and entered into exile. The work of the prophets provides warnings to avoid past mistakes, but points to Israel's best days found in the future. Hope Hope is found through judgment. There's, there's one of those aspects, if you've been tracking with uh, these episodes in this season, that, that message of hope through judgment. Hope is found through judgment in the prophets. It is especially noteworthy that the prophets' statements regarding Israel's future blessings are related to the nation's future blessings as well. Now, as we think about the mission of God and, and basically the, the notion of God blessing the nations. Let, let's think in terms of the movement of the Gentiles. How do the Gentiles come into relationship with their Creator? You know, how, what do we see, not only in the prophets, but all throughout the, uh, the rest of the Old Testament, but definitely within the prophets, we will see this. And that is um, really through two different categories, if you will. Now, I want to direct you to an excellent article that, that, that Charles Scobie wrote, and this was, oh, this was back in 1992. Uh, he wrote an article called Israel and the Nations. And, um, and in this article, he talks about two methods of Gentile conversion, if you will. In other words, the movement of the nations, the movement of the Gentiles into relationship with their Creator to experience His face shining upon them and His blessings being upon them. And those two methods are uh, what Scobie refers to as, and here's some big words for you, historical incorporation and eschatological ingathering. Historical 
incorporation, and eschatological ingathering. Here, here's the way that I often think about it. So the historical incorporation is sort of that notion of over time you see um, uh, Gentiles coming into the community of Israel, the nation of Israel, and locking arms with Israel and her God. And it's sort of just uh, a few Gentiles here, a few Gentiles there, some over here, some over there. So we, we see, uh, for example, um, Rahab. That's in the book of Joshua, so that's in the prophets. So you see Rahab and her household uh, coming into the community of Israel. Uh, you, see, um, you see a mixed multitude coming out of Egypt that goes back to Torah. You, you find examples of, of other individuals uh, and maybe their households throughout the Old Testament uh, locking arms with the people of Israel. I think about Ruth, for example. Uh, again, a few Gentiles here, a few Gentiles there, a historical incorporation. Over Israel's history, they are trickling in, so to speak. You read so much of Torah, and you find out about how to relate to and welcome the stranger, the sojourner in your land. That's an element of the historical incorporation. However, within the prophets, you also see this other method that Scobie talks about, and that is the eschatological ingathering. And that is more of this large, massive, sweeping movements of God's hand, bringing in significant size populations, larger numbers of Gentiles coming into uh, lock arms with the community of the people of Israel and, and her God. And so we'll see those things. And we've seen those things already in, in just our discussion in this, uh, this season, but we'll see those things as we move uh, deeper into the prophets and into the writings and definitely into the New Testament with things that, that show up and reflect that the movement of the Gentiles comes through these historical incorporations, and then we begin to see more and more, especially uh, post-Pentecost, when the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, Joel being one of the books in the Book of the Twelve, in the Prophets, when the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy occurs in Acts chapter 2, you begin to see this eschatological ingathering uh, happening uh, in a very significant, significant way. So keep those things in mind, the incorporation, historical incorporation, and eschatological ingathering, really two major ways we see the Gentiles moving toward the God of Israel. So let's think about this for a second. Looking at the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, Let's think about this, this concept or sort of this, this sub-theme underneath this uh, theme of mission in the prophets, and that is the blessing of the nations comes through a place. The blessing of the nations comes through a place in the former prophets, and that place is the promised land. So when Moses passes away, his right-hand man, so to speak, Joshua, then leads Israel into the land of promise, the land that was promised to the patriarchs. And it was not because of Israel's goodness. It was not because of Israel's righteousness. Uh, we see that they, they come into the land, according to Deuteronomy chapter 9, because of the wickedness of the nations that were there, that God gave them for over four centuries to repent, and because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would inherit this land. God had called Israel his son from Egypt, according to Exodus chapter 4 and what Hosea in the uh, latter prophets, uh, Hosea chapter 11 would say, and uh, he was about to place the people in a highly strategic location for his mission. Right there in that little 
strip of land along the Mediterranean. The book of Joshua provides a glimpse into the process by which Gentiles would come to unite with God's people. So really early in the book, as I mentioned just a moment ago, you see Rahab and her family fearing the God of Israel. Um, When we move uh, into, for example, Joshua chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we read this passage, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over. And here's why. So that, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you fear the Lord your God forever. Israel, Israel was to fear the Lord, but such divine acts also served as a witness to the Gentiles. So Rahab, for example, and others, that even though Jericho is destroyed, she and her household uh, were saved. So you see uh, the notion of part of the way that God was going to fulfill his mission in the world is providing this place, the promised land, and it is in the former prophets. We really begin to see that, that sub-theme under the mission of God develop. Another sub-theme that we see in the prophets is the blessing of the nations, not only through Israel getting placed into this land on this strip there in what used to be called the Fertile Crescent between many of the major nations of the world and uh, serving as a land bridge between the major continents on that side of the world. Oh, by the way, before I give you this other sub-theme, think about that for a second. Think about that geographical point on the map. Think about that. If Israel goes into that land, that promised land, and they walk faithfully with their God, they are a kingdom of priests, they are a holy nation. Think about the, the trade routes of the day. Think about the, the, the caravan routes of the day. You do not go through the desert. You would have to stay close to the Mediterranean. In other words, if you're going from Africa into what we call Asia or into other parts of the Middle East or what we call Europe, or if you're coming from those loca- locations down into Africa, think about this. Unless you take the Mediterranean, you're going to pass through the land of Israel. And that 100, 150-mile stretch of land right there over a period of time, if the people are living and out, living out this kingdom of kingdom ethic, as the nations pass through, they're going to be that light on a hillside. They're going to be that salt. People are going to come in contact with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a result of them just doing their business and migrating and, and traveling and, and trading. So the land in blessing the nations was a very strategic aspect of the mission of God. So, hey, that's that's a, it's a major footnote. Um, uh, maybe it's more than a footnote. It's a major uh, page, so to speak, uh, in our story here, but I didn't want to miss that. I almost forgot about that. But, hey, let's think about this the second sub-theme. So the blessing the nations through a person. Blessing the nations through a person. A king. A king for all people. We see this showing up in, in the former prophets, particularly in the book of Samuel, or what we have come to call 2 Samuel chapter 7. So after Saul is rejected by God and, and David becomes king, we find out that God makes this Davidic covenant. Uh, he makes this promise to David. And, and in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, here are the, here are the things that are promised. Uh, and, and, and just reflect back on that, that covenant with Abraham, too. A lot of similarity, a lot of building upon this. Here it is. I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom forever. There's that promise of an eternal dynasty. 
I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, the eternal dynasty, if you will. So God's words in, in the, the promise to David there in Samuel, God's words echo aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. And so portions of the Davidic covenant were designed to fulfill that which was promised to Abraham. God's plan involved a Davidic king who would be for all nations. After he receives God's words, what is declared? What does David declare? This is instruction for mankind. It's not just for Israel. The covenant is to be fulfilled by both a faithful father, that is Yahweh, and a faithful son, that is, the king. The king was to live and lead Israel according to Torah. We saw that back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in doing so, the mission of God would extend through Israel, through them, to the nations. All would be blessed who take refuge in the Lord's son of the Davidic dynasty. That's in Psalm chapter 2. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But, but you see that notion of the significance of God's mission in the world being related to blessing the nations through a person, particularly the king over his people. Now, sub-theme, number three. The next sub-theme that you see in this notion of the mission of God in the Old Testament, as we look into the prophets, is the blessing of the nations through a presence. By the way, if you paid attention in the two previous uh, episodes, you're finding, you're hearing some common language used over and over and over again. The blessing of the nations through a place, the blessings of a nation through a person, the blessings of the nation through a presence. Because, again, th these, are, these are significant threads that will run all the way through Genesis to Revelation. So, here, in the prophets, blessing the nations through a presence. It's not the tabernacle, as we talked about in Torah. It is now the temple. So the manifestation of God's mission is developed in, for example, Kings chapter 4, or what we would call 1 Kings chapter 4. Uh, you see the children of Abraham, they become uh, innumerable, so that promise has been fulfilled. They received vast amounts of the promised land, that's been fulfilled as a promise, and they experienced rest and delight under the Davidic dynasty. The nations knew the relationship of Israel with her God, such global knowledge and all would soon increase with another significant milestone in God's mission, the construction of the temple. Listen, listen to this. Listen to this passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon dedicates the temple on that day of dedication. Listen to what he says. He's praying for the nations. Here it is. Likewise, he's praying to God. He says this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name." Solomon understood, and he hoped, and he prayed that the construction of this edifice would make would make global news. 
And he makes this remarkable request on behalf of the Gentiles. He asks God to grant to the foreigner all of his or her petitions. And so while the stories of the history of Israel's God are great and his blessings observed in Jerusalem are great, you see this cry for God to answer the prayers of the Gentiles. And you bring those three concepts together and they become a powerful triad of divine witness to the one true God. Solomon recognizes this testimony, and he concludes his prayer with this expectation. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60, he concludes with saying that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Of course, we see examples of this with the Queen of Sheba coming and checking things out. We see other nations coming and checking things out, the rival of the queen foreshadows the movement of the nations to Jerusalem. It's a matter that is developed in the latter prophets. We'll get to that later. What God did in and through Israel served, don't miss this, served as a magnet drawing the nations to Jerusalem. For, according to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24, for the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Of course, as we know the story, what we find out is the kingdom divides after Solomon's death, somewhere around the year 930 or so, and things go downhill. The nation, the nation would be divided for over three centuries until the Babylonian exile. The book of Kings has little good to say about the actions of any of the monarchs. Israel failed to manifest what it meant to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood before God and the nations. She gave up the great responsibilities that came with her election. She consumed God's blessings for selfish gain through idolatrous acts and became like the nations around her. Torah promised that these horrible results would occur because of sin. God had to explain, or excuse me, God had explained to Solomon that uh, rebellion would result in destruction and exile. Uh, we, uh, we find out that uh, the people who were to extend blessings to the nations, actually became a dreaded proverb and a byword, according to 1 Kings chapter 9. Israel became known, when we get to the end of the former prophets, Israel became known for abandoning uh, the God who had blessed her. And so while the um, mission of God runs strong throughout the former prophets, in these three categories in particular... Uh, the story, we know, is not a, a very optimistic story. It is a very dark story. And uh, it will continue, uh, as we'll see it in the next episode related to the latter prophets. Uh, but, of course, we know uh, that there is still uh, hope to come in what is going on. And we see that showing up, not only in the covenant made with Abraham, uh, the covenant made with Moses, but also the Davidic covenant uh, that is made there in Second Samuel chapter 7 about the eternal dynasty that God will fulfill. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Payne. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.